Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. At this point, most of us are familiar with Bitcoin. Well, pretty much. But we give less thought to the technology behind it, the blockchain. It's a digital ledger that exists within a network of computers. And because this is a shared decentralized ledger, no one can retroactively alter an entry on the blockchain because all the other computers would notice and reject the discrepancy. So the blockchain gives us a permanent record on which to record transactions and contracts without relying on a third party. It is this capability that potentially makes the blockchain so revolutionary in the eyes of many. And that's why I'm so pleased to discuss it today with Paul Vigna. Paul is a markets reporter for the Wall Street Journal, where he covers equities in the economy. He's also the co-author with Michael Casey of both The Age of Cryptocurrency and, most recently, The Truth Machine, The Blockchain and the Future of Everything. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be on it, Jim. Glad to be on it. So let me ask you, uh, start by asking you, what problem does the blockchain solve in an advanced economy like America's that already has a very high level of trust and pretty good intermediaries, such as banks and credit card companies right. and you know, these corporate cloud computing companies? What, solve, what problem are, would, does it solve for Americans? Uh, you know, it's funny because you kind of hit on the big question right at, at the top here, right? It's, it's what problem does this solve? And you can argue that either way, really. I mean, you're right. We do have a lot of trusted intermediaries. We do have a lot of networks and systems and online this and that's in this country that work very well, right? And, and we're able to do a lot of things. And most developing economies have, have similar systems. And you could say, well, you know, there's nothing. There's nothing that this solves that we don't already do. Or you could look at it and you could say, well, yes, of course, we do do all those things, but there are breakdowns here, 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 and here. There are inefficiencies here, 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 and here. And this software could help improve all those processes. And we're well into this software and this process existing, but we are still trying to hash out no pun intended, uh, what exactly it can do. So that's- Indeed, you open up the book in a refugee camp where, you know, there's people who don't have any papers, whose identities, right. uh, you know, they're very difficult to prove. There's a lot, of, and you can see where, okay, very low level of trust, something like this potentially uh, would be super useful. But again, uh, in the United States, uh, not quite as obvious. Well, look, here's one place, and, you know, to get into it, I'll say this too. Just about every single thing that you can do with a computer, somebody has said, we're going to put a blockchain on that and we're going to fix that, you know. So everything is being explored. But what seems more likely? Let's look at one, one instance. Um, in the capital markets, if you are a person who wants to start a company and you want to raise equity and you want to go public and you want to have shareholders, there are a million different processes to, to do that and to handle that entire life cycle of a company. A lot of different people control different parts of it. It is all siloed in different places. There are a lot of different controls. And sometimes those things break down. And, and you're probably familiar with this too, the situation where a company holds an annual shareholder vote. And when they tally up the votes, 
and this doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. When they tally up the votes, they find that they have more votes than they have shareholders on record because the records are not always kept well. This ostensibly could help with that. This could streamline the process of raising capital, issuing debt, and recording that debt because you would have all of that on one sort of master program. All of that would be held in one master database. So you would create shares, they would be recorded on one blockchain, you would sell them, those transactions would be recorded, you would know exactly who owns your stock, exactly how many shares are outstanding, and who should be eligible to vote when these shareholder votes come up. That's one possible thing that could be very powerful if and when that process is perfected and commercialized and, and it rolled out. Which is a sort of use case, you know, the people who are working on these technologies and, you know, hoping, you know, to, to you know, create companies or bring companies, hoping that their, that their company will be the, you know, will be the next huge mega company. There'll be a hundred billion dollar company. What are sort of the, the use cases that get people most excited? Even even if they're even if they're even if they're you know a few years off yet, right? Well, look, and let's say this: they're all a few years off. <laughs> Again, it's you know, Bitcoin. Bitcoin was introduced eleven years ago, and any sort of non-Bitcoin application that could reach the mainstream, that could really have some penetration and some some utility, is still years off. There are a couple that I think are interesting, but are still mainly theoretical. And then there are a couple that I think are more practical. So let, let's just kind of go through that. I mean, sure. I think the idea that you could use this for, for voting is fascinating. And there are people that are trying to do it to try to take this process and, and put it into our, you know, that whole convoluted process of voting. And when you think about people talking about ballot stuffing and dead people voting, you know, I mean, when you talk about uh, voter fraud, the, the idea that you could have an immutable, uncorruptible record of who is eligible to vote and when they voted, powerful. However, right now, it's still very, very far off. But that's one I think is interesting. Uh, another one is anybody who's listening to this who has bought a house understands how frustrating and time-consuming and slow the process yes. is of a title search, of you know the actual selling of the house, recording the deed, all that stuff. If you could have all that in a shared database, a massive shared database, where the title search would take minutes instead of weeks. Fascinating, right? Still largely theoretical. Right, because you, you, know, you were mentioning the, the voting, um, and, you know, I, and I say, you know, in the United States and most advanced economies are sort of high trust. Uh, well, there seems to be a bit less trust. And you mentioned the voting, but also things like, you know, what we know, what people are seeing on the Internet. You know, is that real? Is this fake news? Is it a, sure. you know, is it a fake video? Is, is there a way to use uh, potentially blockchain to sort of confirm that what, you know, what people are seeing is what they're, is, is it the yeah. real deal? Yeah, there, there is. And, and look, I think you will probably end up with a situation when you're talking about that, especially you're always going to have people trying to work their way around it. Right. And maybe they figure out ways, but for one thing, for example, uh, you're talking about, it's, it's really, it's a sort of an offshoot of copyright, which is another idea people have had that you have this sort of, it, you, it, you basically have this unbreakable timestamp 
you know, if, if you know that, you know, if anyone's ever used a notary, right, you go to the notary and they put a stamp on your document and it's recorded and it's official. This is a digitized version of that. And one of the things Mike and I did with our first book was as a proof of that sort of is you, anything that you can digitize, you can embed into a transaction on a blockchain that gets recorded. So we took our book and we digitized a PDF of it and we included that in a transaction. So that now for all time, if anyone came and said, you know, that they wrote the age of cryptocurrency and it wasn't us, we could go back to that transaction, unpack it and show that at this date and at this time, we had this book right here and it's ours and it's real. And that's our proof of, of ownership. You could take that kind of a system and port it over to something where you could thwart a lot of that, you know, the, the, the fake news and all that kind of stuff. So copyright is, is a big one that people talk about too. Uh, I think with all of these, I want to get to two that are more promising, but I think sure. with all of these, what people were discovering is that this technology is still nascent. It is still being built. It is still being perfected. There are a myriad problems. I mean, look, you talk about a company like Microsoft, Apple, companies that have been developing their software for decades. If you own any Microsoft products, any Apple products, you know that you are constantly getting software updates. They are still working on their software. They're still perfecting their software. So this is a process. It's going to be a long, long time before this stuff is ready to go into production. Would you expect cryptocurrency ultimately to be the most important application of this technology? Probably. And that's kind of where I was going eventually. Uh, the, the two that I think are the most promising and probably within the next five years would be the idea of this on the, within the capital markets. In other words, what I was talking about before, where you can have a situation where companies could issue debt and, and track their debt on a blockchain and stocks could be sold. Uh, I think that could happen possibly within the next five years. And the other one is the original one, currency. This software was developed originally to support a currency, Bitcoin. And that still is probably the most likely use case that we're going to see in the next couple of years. The irony is that it is probably not going to come from Bitcoin. It is going to come from either a central bank or a company like Facebook. That has been sort of the most interesting twist to this whole story over the past year. Right. I, I mean, I seem to remember when people were talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. It was it was kind of this libertarian technology that would be that would be involved, you know, you know, people, not big institutions, certainly right. not government, uh, right. being able to transact, uh, you know, with each other. But now it's now it's now you're talking central banks. You're talking, you know, some of you know one of the largest corporations in the world. So certainly, it seems to me the expectations uh, for what cryptocurrency is and how it will be used have certainly changed a lot over the past three years. It has absolutely, and I think. Personally, I still think we're going to end up in a world where you are going to have myriad competing digital currencies. And to an extent, you kind of have that now. A lot of what we do is already electronic. I mean, if you're using credit cards, if you're using Venmo or PayPal mobile apps, um, if you're using a, a bank's mobile service, a lot of what you're doing is already digitized. The question now is, are governments going to start digitizing the sovereign currency? Are you going to have a digital version of the US dollar? Which would really be fascinating to think about if you could have 
essentially, you know, you go to Amazon and you're, you know, you're paying with a credit card, you would actually be paying with a wallet that would have digital dollars in it. So you wouldn't be going through a credit card company. You would just have. But, but that's in that exact scenario, how does, you know, how as sort of as a consumer, like why is that better than the current status quo? Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not even a question of whether. Is it, is it because there'd be better. less sort of, there'd well, be less I mean, of a look, transaction I'll, I'll, fee or. Well, yeah, exactly. It's not necessarily better. It's, it's more, con is it more convenient? Yeah, look, right now you can't really spend cash online, right? So everything is a workaround, a credit right. card, uh, PayPal system. PayPal is probably the closest to it, actually. But it's just, would it be more convenient? Would it be faster? Would you be, you know, look, when I, and here's the real one is, is privacy. I can go into virtually any store in Manhattan and I can buy something and I can pay with cash. And that is a private transaction that only myself and the merchant are privy to. Nobody knows what was exchanged. Nobody knows how much it was. If I put with a credit card, the credit card company knows how much money I just spent. Uh, the eventually, the uh, credit ratings agencies are going to know exactly what I spent. You know, a half dozen institutions are going to have some insight into that transaction. So a lot of this is going to come down to privacy. And online, when you're spending money, you have no real privacy. There, there are institutions that have to process those transactions. And they all know what you're spending. And, and, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world, but it is a reality. With digital money, you could have that sort of the privacy of cash online, which is, you know, to the, and, and this is you're kind of, I think, an interesting point too, Jim, is like, do people care about that? Well, I that's mean, our, and obviously the, a lot the of issue people of privacy. don't care. Yeah, I mean, the issue of privacy has come up in a variety of podcasts, and you know, yeah. people seem there are certainly a lot of you know, you know, activists and politicians who are talking a lot about privacy. But sort of my my baseline case is that as long as someone does not have access to your funds or your web history, people don't care about privacy. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think people, I think privacy is a huge. I think it's an important issue. Think about this: Do you want? A company like Facebook, and I'm not saying Facebook is bad or evil, but I mean, do you want a company that already has a lot of information about you? Do you want them to know exactly what you're spending online? Theoretically, in the future, you'd be you might be spending with uh, their 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 sort of proto cryptocurrency is Libra. Yeah. Do you know what's uh, is that going to happen? I know they're still working on it. They're still building it. They're still developing it. The, the issue with them is going to be regulatory and political. Can they get regulatory approvals to operate this thing, essentially? How is it going to be categorized? How is it going to be classified? How is it going to live under the financial codes that we have now? That all still needs to be worked out. The problem is that Facebook is not exactly popular in Washington, D.C. right now. So the problems for Libra are, are more legal and regulatory and political than they are technical. Yes, I, I, I detect deep skepticism, certainly among American policymakers, for, yeah. for, you know, for Facebook having any any greater you know access to our lives, whether it's digital currency or anything yeah. else. But look, the, the interesting thing, the fascinating thing with Facebook and Libra, Libra is the name of their, their currency that they created, right? When they announced that, that, was a sea change moment for digital money. 
until then, it was all Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple. It was all these little Wild West open source, you know, crypto anarchists, libertarians. It was all these different efforts and governments were paying attention. Companies were paying attention, but they weren't going overboard. But when Facebook announced it, when a company that already has 2 billion, more than 2 billion users across its various products said, we're going to create money, everybody started taking this very, very seriously. And now you have virtually every central bank in the world exploring this technology and trying to determine whether they should use it and how they should use it. And you have every government taking it seriously and you have other companies taking it seriously. So whether or not Libra itself ever launches, I think it, it showed that the technology could be implemented by anybody and that anybody could be a group of developers or a large company or a central bank. And it just, it changed the entire narrative around the idea of digital money. You know, in the book, early in the book, that you list a number of potential use cases, and in many of them, uh, you have the words decentralized. And a lot of people are right now, they're worried that too much of the economy, particularly technology, has become centralized, that we have these few big technology companies who dominate uh, social media, dominate mm -hmm. search, dominate online commerce. Is the blockchain also a threat to those business models in any way? <laughs> or not because they have because they have data I mean, and they okay. have the developers and they have the scientists I, and... yeah I, I think this i think that this fault line of centralized systems versus decentralized systems is a key fault line in everything that is going to happen over the next 5 10 20 years it it, it encompasses privacy it encompasses sovereignty it is a key issue right now the centralizers are way ahead of the decentralizers and the decentralizers are bitcoin everyone supporting bitcoin uh there are a bunch of people who are kind of trying to build new versions of the world wide web that would not allow for the kind of centralization that exists with amazon and facebook and google you have this whole effort over here of people who are looking at the way things developed and saying, oh my God, this is actually kind of terrible. Uh, we have no privacy. We have no, you have no actual personal sovereignty. Companies have access to everything you do and they are manipulating you. This is terrible. Uh, they're, they're not necessarily wrong, but they have a gigantic, huge uphill battle before they're can topple a Google or a Facebook or, or Twitter or any of these large centralized institutions. So I think it's a big issue, but I think right now it's a very lopsided issue. Is this a job destroying technology? Because again, as I read through the use cases, it sounds like you're getting rid of a lot of, a lot of like middlemen, a lot of intermediaries. Is this another technology that's just going to cost probably now, which are a lot of high paying jobs? I mean, yes. <laughs> But, but the, the other half of that is, of course, I mean, every single technology does that. Uh, you know, it's, I, I discovered this, which is something I didn't know, that at one point, the, the word computer was a job description. A computer in the 30s and 40s and into the 50s was somebody who compiled numbers. It was a job. 
companies hired people to do math. A that's what a computer was, like a miner. Then they actually started automating that. And the interesting thing is uh, IBM's first big computer in the late 40s, when they unveiled the thing, they didn't call it a computer because Tom Watson, who invented you know, the founder of IBM, he didn't want to put that label on the machine because he was afraid people would say exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So they called it something else. They called it a calculating machine. They didn't call it a computer, but that's what computers were. So computers took away jobs in the 40s and you know throughout the, the history of computing and other jobs were created. So yeah, I mean, every technology is going to destroy some jobs somewhere. I'm very sensitive to the issue. I'm getting, I'm not trying to downplay it, but the reality is, you know, technology shifts the way we work. So some jobs will probably be destroyed. A lot of middle middle manager jobs like you're a lot of middlemen jobs that like you're talking about, probably something else will be created to replace it. This is almost the sort of the classic case of that phenomenon where um, again, just going through the use cases, you can see how, oh yeah, that will, you know, that would eliminate some jobs. But given that we don't know how the technology is going to advance, we don't know what new things people are going to think about as far as how to use it, it's almost impossible to predict what those new jobs will be, while it's very easy to sort of predict the kinds of jobs that would be lost. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, you can't, you, you just, you can't. I mean, if I could, good God, I'd, I'd start a company and get rid of it. The funny thing is people are going to try and that's kind of, that's creative sure. destruction, right? I mean, people are going to try to figure out what the next pivot is. People are going to try to come up with the next thing and you will see a lot of people building and, Part of that you saw reflected in the groundswell around Bitcoin and blockchain. People said, oh my God, this technology is going to create X new things and we can do this, that, and everything. And you've seen a lot of companies come in and you've seen a lot of capital going, to, going into trying to build new things around this technology and create jobs. There's certainly a lot of smart people with a lot of money who think this, they may not know, yet know exactly what this is going to be, They think, but I think it will be something and something yeah. valuable. Yeah. And finally, where do you think this? What do you think the technology looks like ten years from now? I think the technology. You know, I think right now it still seems like a bit of novelty. Right. right. I think the technology ten years, if it develops, I think in ten years from now the technology is going to look boring. I think if if it works, if it gets perfected, if it gets built, if it gets commercialized, what is going to happen is that a lot of what we do now is going to be replaced by these blockchain-based computer systems, but they're all going to run in the background of our daily lives and you won't really see it and you won't really care about it. It'll kind of be like, look, how many people right now, and I, I couldn't do it if you put me to this either, but how many people right now could explain to you how an internal combustion engine works? Well, you and I could. Well, yes, but like the average person. No, no, you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> how many people could explain to you all? Not, probably, you know, some, but not as many as not, maybe right. you would think. How many people can use a car? Everybody. So I think blockchain eventually, if it works and grows, it'll be like that. It'll be the thing that is powering a lot of what we do, but it's going to be in the background. It's going to be under the hood. You're not going to see it. It's right now. It's a novelty and it's interesting and it's fascinating. And we have all this color around Bitcoin and the libertarians and the rebels and all that stuff. If this develops, it is going to be something that you're just, you're not really even going to talk about anymore. My guest today has been Paul Vigna. Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jim.